I'm going to wrap up our series for the last month and a half. We've been going through this series on, Is the Bible Really God's Word? And uh, today I'm going to end that series, not because we're out of stuff to talk about. We could talk uh, on this topic uh, for a long, 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 long time and, and cover many more things. But uh, we always have to leave something undone so we can come back to it at, at another date. And, and uh, next week, I want to start a little two-part mini-series before we uh, go on to Father's Day that I'm really excited about. And I want to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to learn a lot from those ones. But anyway, today I want to finish, is the Bible really God's word? And today's message is essentially just the second half to last week's message. Okay, and so if you weren't here last week, you, you need to go back and listen to that message. In that message, uh, we looked at uh, this big topic, this big question of, does the Bible have errors in it? Does it have mistakes? And that's uh, a hugely important question. We looked at some of the reasons why that's such an important question last week. Uh, and then last week, and we looked at the fact that, uh, you know, you don't come to that conclusion because you can prove it. You can't scientifically prove that the Bible uh, doesn't have any mistakes in it. You can't go back and scientifically prove that Jonah actually got swallowed by a whale. You can't scientifically prove, you know, that David, the David and Goliath story happened. And neither can skeptics prove that they didn't happen, right? So we looked at how do we know that this, how do we come to the conclusion that this thing doesn't have errors? And we looked at four points, really important points, other evidences outside reasoning that lead us to believe. We have very good reasons for believing that this thing has no errors, okay? And so if you, again, if you weren't here last week, this week's message is built on that. We're going to test that conclusion later in the message. But before I do that, there's one other thing I've been promising throughout this series that I would touch on, and it doesn't fit at the end of, this, at the end of the message, so I'm going to do it right now at the beginning. But one of the most common questions I often get, and I've been getting it again lots during this series, is I get the question, why are there so many different English translations? Why are there so many different English translations and, and which one is the right one? Are there wrong ones? Are there right ones? Which one is the right one? And, uh, and so I've been promising throughout the series that I would finally get to that and I need to squeeze it in here at the beginning. So before I finish last week's message, I first want to talk about the translations. And so the question, which translation is the right translation? And the short answer to that is none of them. There is no such thing as one right English translation. Uh, the thing you have to realize about how God inspires the Bible, God inspired the original writing, the original documents. God inspired Paul when he wrote you know, his original letters. God inspired Peter when he wrote his original letters. God inspired Moses when Moses wrote, you know, the, the first five books of the Bible. God inspired the originals, and the originals are absolutely inspired and from God and without error, Okay. The job of the translations is to get us as close back to those originals as we possibly can, okay? But God is not re-inspiring every one of the translations. He inspired the Bible once. He inspired it in the beginning, and now translators work really, really hard in the translations to get us as close back to the original as we possibly can, but no translation is absolutely perfect. Impossible. Every every translation, and that's just the nature of how translation works, okay? That's just what happens when you take from one language and you go to another one. Any of you here who speaks more than one language, you know this is true. When you translate something from one language to another, it's impossible to always get it 100% the same because certain words and the way you say them in this language, there isn't an exact translation in this language. Isn't that true? 
I mean, I remember growing up, some of you will be able to uh, uh, you, empathize with me on this one. I remember growing up, you go to a family gathering, grandma and grandpa would tell a joke in low German, and everybody would laugh. The uncles and aunts would be crying with laughter. And us kids would be saying, tell us the joke in English. Tell us the joke in English. No, no, it's not that it doesn't work in English. No, no, tell us the joke in English. So they tell us the joke, and you're right. Yeah, you're right. That is dumb, okay? <laughs> because something is lost from the plowditch or however you say it, from that to English, it's like that, that, didn't, that didn't connect there because it, that's how languages work. That's how translation works, okay? So when you translate from the original, which God inspired, and you put that thing into English, you're going to have, it's not exactly the same, but the goal of the translators is to get us as close back to the same as we can. Now, some of you are going, oh my goodness, this is horrible. You know, the, the originals are inspired by God, but the translations aren't totally perfect. What are we going to do? Um, I mean, the biggest thing I can say is, is relax. Uh, God knows all of this. He's sovereign. He knows all of this. He's the one who, who's, who's preserved for us the Bible this whole time. He's the one who invented language. He's the one who invented the variety of languages that we have now. I mean, he knows all of that, and he loves all of that. And even the weakest translation, even the weakest translations still communicate easily to us all of the most important truths. I mean, even the weakest translation still communicates to you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. Our hope is in him raising our bodies. Heaven, uh, salvation by faith, creation, don't murder, you know, don't commit adultery. All of those, it doesn't matter how weak the translation is, the, the, you know, the main truths all are easily translatable, okay? And so it, it's, it, it's not like a big thing of, of like freaking out about it, but then the question is, well, which is the best translation? Okay, there's no perfect translation, but certainly there are better translations and there are less good translations. And one of the ways that we are blessed, especially in the English language, is that we have more than 25 translations. And this is a good thing because what it means is if there's a mistake in one translation, you know, uh, pastors and all of us, we have access to other ones. We can say, this one's not making sense to me here. What are the other translations saying? And you can sort of get a consensus and see what are many, many different translations of the scholars saying. That's helpful. That helps us get closer and closer and closer back to the original. And tons and tons of scholarship. I can't tell you enough. On the major translations in English, we're talking so much scholarship has been done that we can trust that we are very close in our meeting in English to, to what the meaning was in the original. Very, 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 very close. That's really important. So around here at Southland, there are four basic translations that are most commonly used. Uh, these are certainly not the only ones. Some of you here today will have a different one, no doubt. And that's not bad, but I just, some, I get this question so often, I thought I just wanted to hit this one head on. It's a good time to do that. But the uh, four most commonly used translations uh, here at Southland would be the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, that's the one I, I use, uh, English Standard Version, the NIV, New International, and the, the New Living Translation. And all four of these, all four of these are trustworthy translations. They're all very good translations, okay? And lots of scholarship has gone into all of these. Lots of, they've, I mean, they've been tested, and many scholars looking at these things, and these are all good translations. So, of course, then the question that I get is, well, what's the difference like, why do we have so many? What's the difference between them? Um, the difference is in the way that the translators went about doing the translating. I mean, any of you, again, who, know, who speaks more than one language, you know that if, if, if two people listen to the same sentence, let's say in low German, and they both, you know, translate it into English, you're, they're going to translate, you're going to get the same meaning, but they're both going to use different words. So you're going to have differences just by different people doing it. 
Okay? But then on top of that, when it comes to Bible translating, there's also there's, there's two different ways you can translate the original languages into English. Okay? And one way is what's called word-for-word -word translating, and the other way is what's called thought-for-thought -thought translating. Okay? And in word, what happens is in word-for-word -word translating, what happens is scholars look at the original documents and the original languages, and they just take each word. It's just you look at a word in the Hebrew or the Greek or the original language, whatever it is, you look at that word, and then you just find an, an English equivalent or the closest equivalent, you put it in. You go to the next word, you take an English equivalent, and you put it in, and you go word-for-word, -word, and you just translate every word in the original into English, Okay. That's called word-for-word -word translating, okay? The other kind of translating is what's called thought-for-thought. -thought. In thought-for-thought -thought translating, the translator reads the original language, so they read a paragraph, or they read a passage, or they read a sentence, or they read a verse, whatever it is. They take a little chunk, they read it in the original, and then they take, what did that mean? And they put that into English words, okay? And so that's, there you go, word-for-word, -word, where you just go every word directly into English, and then you have thought-for-thought, where you take a little chunk, and then you just, okay, what does that mean? And then you write it in, in English. That's the two basic ways of doing it. Now, there's pros and cons to both, okay? Um, the benefit of word-to-word -word translating is that it's very, very accurate to the original because you're reading what the original actually says, okay? Now, the downside of word-to-word -word is that it, it's hard to read, okay? In a pure word-for-word -word translation, the original languages weren't written the way we speak and write English today. So in a pure word-for-word, word, the, the sentences, they don't, they're kind of awkward to read, and the expressions are kind of awkward to read, the figure of speech, all sorts of stuff, they're awkward, okay? The second downside of word-to-word -word, uh, translating is exactly what I just mentioned, figures of speech, okay? So, so uh, figures of speech, um, what's an example here? I had one in, in here, and I want to make sure I, I can never remember them off the top of my head. Um, oh, okay, yeah, like let's say I... I, I I say something like, I racked my brain trying to figure out the answer to that question, okay? And when I say here to all of you, I racked my brain to remember the answer to a question or to figure out the question, you all know, I mean, it doesn't come into your mind that I did something horrible to my brain, like shake it vigorously or, or beat on it or stretch it on a rack. You don't think about that. You know I was just trying really hard to think of something, right? Okay? So I write, I racked my brain. Now, let's say someone in China... They want to translate that, that English into Chinese, and they just do word for word. So they just do racked, okay, whatever, that, whatever the Chinese equivalent. Poof, my into Chinese, brain into Chinese. And so now a Chinese person reads this, but they don't have the figure of speech, I racked my brain. So they read this, and right away they go, oh, what on earth was he doing to his head, okay? So that's figure of speech. So in a word for word translation, word for word translations uh, are not good for figures of speech. Okay? So that's the downside. The, the upside is very accurate to the original. The downside is hard to read and in cases of figures of speech, hard to understand. Okay? Uh, thought for thought, the benefit of thought for thought translations is they're very easy to read. Super easy to read. Because they, they just read like we would write in, in English. Because the translator looks at a section and then writes it out in English the way we would, we would write it out. So they're easy to read. The downside of thought for thought is the more thought for thought you go, the further you get from the original in terms of accuracy, and more and more what you're getting is the translator's interpretation of what it says, not what it actually says. Does that make sense? 
Okay? So now what every translation tries to do is they try to find a balance. There is no such thing as a pure word-for-word translation. You and I wouldn't be able to understand it because the original languages also don't have the same word order as we have. So a pure word-for-word translation would never work. And, you know, pure thought-for-thought, also not good because of the accuracy thing. So the different translations, what they try to do is some try to be more word-for-word and some try to be more thought-for-thought. So I'll just put up the four common ones uh, uh, that, you know, that I have up there. I'll just put them on a, on a you know, a continuum there. And, and this is what those translate. This is how they're different, okay? The NASB is the most pure word-for-word accurate to the original words translation we have in English, okay? It's very, very word-for-word. Uh, and of course, it's not possible to be purely, purely word-for-word, but it's as close as you can really get in English. It's so pure to word-for-word that where, wherever they've had to put in an English word that isn't in the original, like the word the, sometimes you just have to put in a word the because it wasn't there in the original, but we need it for English, right? They'll actually write the word in italics so when you're reading it, you know, oh, that's not in the original. But every other word is exactly straight from the original, okay? Now, the downside to the NASB is it is the most difficult one to read, no question. It has lots of passages that are just kind of awkward and lots of passages where you go, don't have any idea what that means, okay? But it's a great, very accurate Bible, and I often reference it when I want to see what does this verse really say, okay? The next one there is the ESV, and that's the one I personally use, and some people, uh, you know, think that our, our church, uh, you, know, in pub, you know, officially endorses this Bible just simply because I use it so much in my messages. It's just a personal thing. I love the ESV. It's word for word. It's very accurate. It's not quite as word for word as the NASB, uh, it just has such a good blend of very accurate word-for-word, and it also reads really nicely. And you can really trust it in terms of accuracy and, and what the originals say. And then there's the NIV, which is a thought-for-thought translation. Okay, that's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a blend. It's the most popular modern English translation out there. I think 30% of the Bibles that get sold, and there's, there's like over 25 translations, and a third of them are NIVs. And then there's the NLT, which is even more thought for thought than the NIV. And the NLT is a a wonderful Bible. I've used that personally in in the past. Uh, Now I've just attached the ESV, but but the uh, NLT is a wonderful thought for thought. It reads amazingly. Like you read the stories in the NLT, like you read the stories about Moses and, you know, Samson and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some of the stories in the Gospels, and they just read so nicely. Now, of course, when you're over there that far thought for thought, when details matter, when you're studying a doctrine or when you're studying details, and it's not just a story, but you're trying to figure something out, you always need to go back to a word for word because a thought for thought is going to miss some of that stuff. It's going to read so good for the stories, but it's going to miss some of the details. Does that make sense? But these are all, all these four here are good. They're good translations and uh, wonderful to use. Now, I do want to mention one more here because it is so immensely popular and many people think of it as a translation, but it actually isn't. And that is the, the Bible, which really isn't actually a Bible so much, it's, but it's called the message. And a lot of people use the message. Now, the message is not bad, okay? The message is not a bad book. It's not, it just isn't a translation, okay? We're, the other translations there were all worked on by teams and teams and teams of scholars, every one of them, who really work on this thing to get it accurate. The message doesn't try to do that. The message was written by one person, Eugene Peterson, wonderful guy, not a bad guy. He wasn't trying to write a translation like the other ones. He was trying to just make a super accessible Bible for everyone to read, but it isn't a translation, it's a paraphrase. 
it is so extremely thought for thought that, again, it's wonderful to read. You read it, but read it like a book, not like the Bible. You should always be regularly going back to an actual translation because a lot of what you're getting in the message is Eugene Peterson's thoughts of what the original says, not the actual original. Does that make sense? So it's not a bad book to read, but, but technically it's a paraphrase. It really isn't a translation. And, of course, you, God still uses it, and that's amazing. But we need to be careful because otherwise you can get into human error rather than, than the God thing. Okay, so that's the Bible translation talk. I've done it, and uh, hopefully it helps some of you and, and puts some of you at ease and all that sort of stuff. Now I want to finish off last week's message, are there errors in the Bible? Okay, and so last week we said, no, there aren't. And we looked at those four things, and we said, here's the four reasons why we say there are no errors in the Bible. Here's the four things that lead us to that conclusion that we can feel very confident that there are no errors in the Bible. But now, I did, which I didn't have time to do last week, now we need to test that conclusion. We need to test it. We came to that conclusion. We have good reasons for believing that conclusion. But now we need to test it and say, well, are there actually errors in here or not? Because if we find errors or mistakes in here, then our conclusion was wrong, okay? And it isn't actually too hard to find. If, if there are errors in here, they won't be hard to find because many, many skeptics over the years, many skeptics, and if you go on the internet today, you will find dozens, probably hundreds, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but for sure dozens of websites that are devoted to listing all of the supposed errors in here. So it's not actually even hard for us as Christians to figure out if there are errors because the skeptics have done all the work for us. They've found every possible error there could be, okay? And so they've got their lists of these are the contradictions and the errors and the falsehoods in Scripture. Now the amazing thing is, so, so last week I said there are no errors, and then we have all of these skeptical books and papers and websites that say, no, well look, there are the errors and here they are. So are there errors in the Bible? Well, the interesting thing is if you, uh, many uh, very respected theologians, historians, apologists, scholars have systematically gone through all over the years, and these aren't all new. It's not just since the internet. Skeptics have been pointing out these supposed errors for literally hundreds of years. And they've, but they've, over the centuries, many respectable Christian minds have gone through the list, systematically gone through these lists of supposed errors in the Bible, and, uh, and they've actually found, they've actually come to the conclusion, and we can say confidently today, this is not just Chris making something up, but we say, can say confidently today that there has yet to be found even one single error in the Bible. Okay, 2,000 years of skeptics going crazy on this thing and trying to find errors, and we can confidently say, and I say this with, you know, evangelical scholarship as a whole, that not one single mistake has ever been found in here. Now you say, well, how is that possible that one group of people can have a list and say, here are the mistakes, and another group of people can look at that same list and say, there are no mistakes. I mean, how can two groups of people look at the same list and say one and have totally opposite conclusions? Like, are these errors or are they not? We should be able to look at them and have some agreement. And the thing you need to know is that in their in their bias. So we have certain modern biases. We have certain ways of that we want to read this book. And then we have certain things, skeptics in particular, of things that they want to find in this book. And as a result of those, there are, there are mistakes they make when they read this, and they call things errors that shouldn't be called errors. Okay? And so I want to just take some time today, and there's many things we can look at. There's many, many. I just wanted to look at two common mistakes skeptics make when they read this book and they're looking for errors. 
And the reason I want to do that, there's two things it's going to do for us as believers. One, it's going to build our faith that the Bible truly is without error. And number two, it's also going to teach you some things about how you should read this book so that you can understand this book better. All right? And so let's look at some of the common mistakes. How skeptics come to have this huge list of errors that aren't actually errors. The first mistake they make is that they assume that differences in accounts, so the Bible, the Bible tells the same story, but two different authors tell it from two different perspectives. They assume that differences in accounts, in those accounts, mean the accounts are false and contradictory. And there's, there's a couple of really famous ones, like really, really famous ones that skeptics say these are clear contradictions in Scripture. This proves that Scripture has errors in it. I want to look at both of those today. The first one has to do with Judas's death, okay? This is one of the ones that, one of the popular contradictions that skeptics point to is Judas' death. Uh, Matthew says that Judas hung himself, and Luke says that Judas fell down and his gut spilled out. Okay, I'm going to read you the passages, and uh, it's very appetizing stuff right before lunch, and then, and then we'll look and see if, if this is actually a contradiction, right? Matthew 27, verse 5. Matthew uh, uh, tells it this way, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he, speaking of Judas, departed, and he went out and hanged himself. Okay? So that's Matthew's account of how Judas died. Uh, he hung himself. Okay? How does Luke describe it? Right? Acts 1, verse 18. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Okay, so which one is it? Skeptics go, look it. I've put it on the screen. This is one of the most famous ones out there. This is one of the biggest proofs the skeptics say the Bible has to have errors. And remember, this is a really important point. Some Christians just think, well, uh, who cares if there's the odd error too? It makes a huge difference. Because if there's a mistake in this detail here, who's to say there isn't a that Paul wasn't making a mistake when he wrote that we would be raised from the dead after we die? Who's to say? If there's an error here, who's to say... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all made a mistake when they said Jesus rose from the dead. If there's an error here, who's to say, you know, that, it, that there isn't a mistake when it says in the Scriptures that, that if we trust in Jesus, He forgives all of our sins. See, all of it hinges on this is God's Word, and there are no errors, which is why we can trust it. So skeptics say, look it, you have to throw all of it out, because look it, here's a clear mistake. One says he hanged himself, one says he fell headlong, into the field, and all his bowels gush out, so that's a contradiction, okay? So the question is, is this a contradiction? Certainly, these are two different accounts. There's no question about that. We're not, as Christians, we don't look at that and say, no, they're exactly the same. Well, they aren't. They are different. The question isn't, are they different? The question is, do they contradict each other? See, if Matthew, now, so what would a true contradiction look like? Well, if Matthew had said, every hair on Judas's head was black, and Luke said every hair on Judas's head was white, that would be a contradiction. Is that not true? It's a contradiction because they can't all be black and all be white at the same time. That's a contradiction. Two things that are totally mutually exclusive. So the question is now, we look at two different accounts, and we ask, they're different. There's no question about that, but different doesn't mean contradictory. They could just be different details. So the question is, is it contradictory, is it mutually exclusive to say he hanged himself or that he fell headlong into a field and his bowels gushed out? And the answer is absolutely not. 
There are many possibilities that could lead to exactly this. And by the way, after the first service, I didn't even know it was for the first service, I had a man from our church who worked in police forensics for many, many years. Very experienced in that. And now he's retired. But he shared with me, he said, you know, it, for, a, for a forensics person, this is no contradiction. It's not even a question. He said, I saw many cases of people who hung themselves and ended up uh, falling down and having insights below. And he gave me, in gruesome detail, three or four different circumstances that can lead to this happening. <laughs> and I just went, oh. Because there are many things that can lead a person to hang himself. A person goes out into a field and they hang themselves and nobody finds them for a couple of days. It only takes, as he was telling me, it only takes a couple of days. You have all kinds of decomposition. You can have a rope break. You can have a branch break. You can have de decomposition of the Bible in various ways. Now he falls off that tree, whether the branch breaks, the rope breaks, or because of the, the decomposing body, he falls onto rocks and his ballast, that is actually from a forensics person, a, something he saw relatively commonly in his experience. And if you look at the geography around Jerusalem, I've been there myself personally, but even if you haven't been there, you can look it up online. The geography of it is it's all rocks and hills. That's it. Like when Judas bought a field and went and hung himself, okay, that wasn't, it's not like, you know, don't imagine a field with nice, soft, you know, turf. That doesn't exist in Jerusalem. Not even today. It didn't exist 2,000 years ago. There's rocks everywhere. He basically bought a big pile of rocks, Okay. So he could, very easily, it's very plausible, he hung himself, he fell, his bowels gushed out, and you say, well, you can't prove it's true. But that's what I said all last weekend already. We can't prove it's true, but you also can't say it's contradictory. We believe this is true because of what I talked about last week. We have four very good reasons outside of the Bible that convince us very reasonably that what the Bible says is true. So now we come to this and we say, that those two things can easily fit together, easily. The skeptic says they're contradictory. They're not contradictory. Black versus white would be contradictory. These are two things that can easily go together. Does that make sense? You say, well, why wouldn't Matthew have just written down a few more details? Right? That's the thing the skeptics come like. Why wouldn't Matthew write down? If that's how it happened, why would Matthew just write down he hanged himself? Why wouldn't he write down he hanged himself and then the rest of the stuff happened and then we would know it wasn't a contradiction? But that is actually a ridiculous question to ask. Who does that? I mean, again, I, and I, I don't want to make light of suicide here, okay? It's a serious topic, but let's just, but because that's what we're looking at here, in a newspaper, if they write about someone's suicide, so-and-so hung themselves or shot themselves or whatever, did something to themselves to kill themselves, okay? If that happens, that's a serious thing. It's a terrible thing. But again, this is just what's happening here. They don't write so-and-so shot themselves, and then this is what happened to their body after. We would all be like horrified. Oh, that's terrible. That's bad taste. They just write, so-and-so shot themselves, or so-and-so overdosed, or whatever. They don't tell us about the body. That's what Matthew's doing. And he hanged himself. He's not, not going through his mind that I should add more details of what happened to his body. You say, well then, why would Luke do it? Well, there's, how can I get into his head? First of all, he was a doctor, okay? Doctors are weird people, and they like looking at gross things. <laughs> Okay, I don't know why he wrote it. That was interesting to him. Maybe he was, I can just imagine, he's sitting in a house church somewhere when he gets the news and someone comes in and says, hey, they just found Judas's body. And they say how they found the body. And so he writes it that way. He's a totally different person. He's hearing the news from different people. He's looking at it from a different perspective. I mean, if you took two people, you took any event anywhere in the world and had two people write about that same event, you will get different details every time. In fact, in fact, 
we could do that. We could do it right here today. I could ask two people after and say, I want you to write down a description of you know, my sermon today. And you both are sitting in the same sermon right now, same time, same place. And I'll get two different descriptions. In fact, if you wrote the same descriptions, you know what we know right away? You copied each other. Isn't that true? And you know what? People say, well, skeptics say, well, oh, oh come on. It's got to be contradictory. Why would they write two different things? You know what? If they wrote the exact same things in the Gospels, skeptics would be the first ones to say they copied each other. They'd be the first ones to say it. You know how police often catch, you know, when there's a group of people conspiring to lie? You know how they often catch them? When their stories are too much alike. Because when their stories are too much alike, they know they rehearsed this together. So there's many differences in the Gospels, not contradictory uh, uh, differences, but differences that just come from having a different perspective. Different people see things differently. They highlight different details for hundreds and probably thousands of different reasons going on inside our heads that we're not even conscious of. But it certainly is not a contradiction to say he hang, hung himself and that happened. Those two things can certainly happen it, uh, you know, in the same uh, type of way, same type of situation. And this brings up another really important point about the Bible that I need to make. Because this has to do with how we read the Bible and understand the Bible. And often, this isn't just skeptics, okay? This deals with that problem, but it also deals with how we read it. Lots of time I hear Christians complain, you know, why didn't they put more detail in there? Like, like I, w- I would love to know more about what happened to Judas. Like, what was going on in his head? What was going on all this sort of stuff? And we impose modern ways of thinking and writing and reading on the, the ancient text. And the way we, you know, in modern society today, the way we approach journalism and newspaper articles and biographies is totally, absolutely, completely differently than Matthew and Luke and the New Testament people. See, nowadays, a biography or a newspaper article is judged by how many details are in there. Is that not true? I mean, a few years ago, I read a biography of Winston Churchill, literally, and I went and checked to make sure I wasn't exaggerating. This week, I went and I felt it. It was this thick. It was just over a thousand pages, okay? Why would you read something like that? I don't know, but I was kind of interested at the time. <laughs> it was more than a thousand pages for Winston Churchill. A thousand pages. You know how many details about Winston Churchill you, you learn not? By the way, that's not the longest biography about Winston Churchill. You want to know the longest biography about Winston Churchill? Has 24 volumes. That's the official one. Okay? Tens of thousands of pages. You read a biography that long? You, now, we're obsessed with details. Like, just in the thousand page one that I read that isn't even the longest, and there's a hundred, there's literally a hundred about his life. In, in that one, I learned all kinds of details about where he went to school, was he bullied, what did he eat, what did he not like. All this, I found all kinds of stuff about Winston Churchill that is now cluttering up things in my mind that could be better used for other things, okay? <laughs> but that's what we do in modern times. You read a newspaper article, you read a biography, they pack it full of details, and they fill up tons of pages, okay? But when the writers were writing in the New Testament, it was totally different times absolutely different times. First of all, they didn't have word processors. You know, Matthew and Luke couldn't just sit down, bang out 15 pages of material, go to bed, save it to the hard drive, get up the next morning, and bang out another 15. They didn't have access to endless reams of cheap paper. We can go, we can go to Staples here today. Uh, not today, it's not open on Sunday, but whenever, we can go there during the week. And it should, anyway, I won't get into that. That's going to open up all night. Uh, but endless reams of paper. I mean, you could just, but for very cheap, that's 500 pages right there. 500 pages. That would have blown 
Matthew and Luke and the gospel writers away. They didn't have access to cheap paper. They didn't just in their house have stacks of line paper and in their office at work, stacks of, you know, printing paper. They wrote on mostly on animal skins. Think about that. Oh, I'm running out of paper here. And you grab the neighbor's cat, okay? <laughs> I mean, you just don't have endless, you don't have endless paper. So, I mean, you get to page eight or nine and you're like, woo, I got to bring this thing to a close. You're not like Martin Gilbert, thousands of pages on Winston Churchill because you have endless paper. You have to write, it takes much longer. It takes up much more space. They didn't, they didn't have nice printing presses that you could put a book with thousands of pages nicely like this and put it on a shelf. You had to roll it up into huge scrolls. At a certain point, the scrolls were far too big, far too heavy, and the paper would start to fall apart. So you, you were just out of space. And so they wrote totally different than we do today. Today, we just want to cram it full of details. In New Testament times and ancient times, they did not write that way. They wrote with a completely different style, and we cannot impose our modern style on that and judge it by our modern style. In ancient times, they wrote with what I call a severe economy of style, which means they had to write the most important things they had on their mind with as few words as absolutely possible. Which is why, and you will find this throughout the Bible, this is why the Bible is written the way it is. You'll read about some amazing miracle that Jesus did and it's condensed down to sometimes one line. Sometimes just this much. A whole parable that probably took him an hour to describe a whole message and it's down to just a few lines. And all these great things that Jesus did just condensed. They're all little packets and the Old Testament is the same way. Huge stories condensed down to, you know, Daniel in the lion's den would have been a whole book in modern times and it's just one chapter in the book of Daniel. Not even a long chapter. It's on one page. Okay, so they wrote with a severe economy of style, which means that details like how did Judas die isn't hugely key to Matthew's gospel. He's got to communicate things about who is the son of God and he took on human flesh and all the things he did and all of his teachings and his resurrection. He gets to Judas's death and though, you know, it's Holy Spirit inspiration. So it's, it's an important point that Judas killed himself. And so, okay, boom, he puts it in there, but he doesn't go then in brackets and say, oh yeah, and afterwards he fell down and his bowels spilled out. He just moves on. It's one sentence. It's one sentence. And as a result of that, there's very few details in most of these stories. So now think about this. Two or three or four different people writing about the same event. Okay? There's hundreds of details to choose from. Think about that. Anything. If I asked all of you right now to write down a description of this room right now, you would each pick out different things. Some of you would leave out things that were important to other people and, so, and, and you would and emphasize uh, totally other things and other people would emphasize other things and other people would describe those things differently. Now these guys are writing with totally as few words as possible. So they're not even putting in 100 details or 200 details. They're like putting in one detail and there's thousands to choose from. What are the chances that Matthew and Luke are going to pick the exact same one? Not very many. So of course they end up picking different ones happens throughout the Gospels. It doesn't make them contradictory. Really important. Now, there's one more I want to touch on here because it's another, because that's one of the big ones. So, you know, this is one of the big, the skeptics say, your whole Bible falls apart on this one. And we go, really? That, that's your best shot? He hanged himself, his bowels fell up? Okay. Oh. Next one, the other real big one is the number of angels who were at the tomb when the disciples went to find Jesus' body after the resurrection. Okay, this is another one of the big famous ones. This is one of the ones that skeptics say, here is an irreconcilable contradiction. In Matthew, 
when he talks about, uh, you know, the ladies going to the tomb, he, he only mentions one angel. Uh, John clearly says there were two. And skeptics look at this and say, how can there be one and two at the same time? Okay? Well, uh, let me just read the passages. Matthew 28, 1 to 6. And again, I'm just highlighting a couple of these here just because they are such big ones. These are, I'm, I'm throwing out to you kind of the biggest ones that are out there. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel, see, he just mentions one. But the angel said to the woman, the women, do not be afraid for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Okay, so that's Matthew's account. He talks about, an, about the angel, okay? John chapter 20 uh, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So skeptics go, oh, clear contradiction, okay? And so we ask ourselves the question, well, if, if Matthew says there's only one angel, and John says there's two, then we have a contradiction, right? Like, if Matthew says there's only one, and John says there's two, that's, that we have an error in Scripture, and, and that you know, how can we trust everything else, okay? But here's what I want you to notice. Matthew does not say there's only one angel. Do you notice that there? He doesn't say there's only one angel. He just quotes one angel, okay? And now just some basic math. I took a math degree. I know not all of you did, so I'll just, um, but so just to bring it down to your level in math, wherever you have two angels, you have one angel. <laughs> Am I right? Is that not true? Wherever I have two cars, I have one car. Wherever I have two men, I have one man. Wherever I have two of anything, I have one of it. Matthew doesn't say there was only one. He quotes one. Now remember, he wasn't even there. He, him and John are both getting this account firsthand from the two Marys. So that who knows how this happened? Mary, and again, it's not, remember, they're writing with severe economy of style. It's not important. To John, it's important that we know the setting, that there was two angels there. Not two, that would be four, but two, okay? But to John, that's important. So he writes it. But Matthew, severe economy of style, it's not important. All he cares about is what did the angel say when he talked to Mary and Mary, okay? So he writes that down, and he doesn't go in brackets and waste up space, you know, on, on the animal skin of saying, well, and actually there was a second one there, just so you know, so skeptics 2,000 years from now don't jump all over me for this, okay? He just quotes the one. So Mary and Mary tell him the story about seeing the angels, and they talk about how the angel told them this, and he just quotes it. The angel told them this. He doesn't say there was only one. If he said there was only one, it would be a contradiction. But this isn't a contradiction. These are ancient writers writing as many details as they can that are very, very important into as few words as possible. And so, of course, if in modern-day biographies, whoa, this, this passage here would be a whole chapter of what were the angels wearing and what did it feel like and the dew on the grass and blah, blah, and what were the women feeling and all this sort of stuff. That's what we would have, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Thank God, actually, he wrote it then and not now. Do you know how long this thing would be if we blew each of these stories up into mo a modern-day biography? We would never get through the Bible. So we have severe economy of style, but they're not contradictions, okay? Does that make sense? Very, very uh, important point, okay? So... That's the first mistake that people make, is they think that just because there's differences in the accounts means they're contradictions. You have to actually look and see if it's an actual contradiction, and this is not one, okay? Um, second mistake I want to look at is 
that people make, and this one is really important for how we as Christians, not just for skeptics, but for how we as Christians read the Bible and understand the Bible. And the second mistake that people make when looking at the Bible is this, ignoring the fact that the Bible uses different literary styles or devices. Okay, ignoring the fact that the Bible uses many different literary styles. This is really important for us all to keep in mind. You should not read all of this 100% literally. It's not supposed to be. Okay? We don't talk that way in everyday language either. We should not expect of the Bible stuff that we don't even do in our own everyday language. You and I and us and all of us and our families and friends at work we speak all the time and we use different kinds of speech that we know are not meant to be taken literally. For example, figures of speech. Uh, if I would say to someone, uh, could you lend me a hand here? Okay. Now, we all know what that means. I don't have to explain what that means. Okay. Now, let's imagine that I write down in my journal or somewhere, I wrote down, I went and lent so-and-so a hand. And someone come, you know, the, on Saturday moving a piano or something like that. Which, by the way, don't ask me to do that. That's horrible. But, uh, but I lend someone a hand doing whatever, okay? So you write that down. Now someone comes and reads this a couple days later and says, you're lying. I'm lying? Yeah, I see you have both your hands right there. What are you talking about? I'm lying. I lent them a hand. I helped them with something. It's a figure of speech. It's not intended to be taken literally. And we all know that. But many times what people do is they want the entire Bible to be taken absolutely, literally, every single thing in it. And the Bible wasn't meant to be read that way, just like we don't speak that way. We use figures of speech and hyperbole all the time. You know what hyperbole is? It's exaggeration, but not the bad kind. There's a bad kind of exaggeration where you're lying. You're exaggerating something to make yourself look good or to get a job or whatever. That's a bad kind. But we use hyperbole all the time. Oh, that thing was light as a feather. That's hyperbole. That's red light is taking forever, Okay? Hyperbole. You're not lying. You don't turn to your spouse and say, stop lying. <laughs> it's hyperbole. We talk that way. Guess what? There's hyperbole in the Bible. There's hyperbole in the Bible. Let me show you one. I don't have it on PowerPoint here. Uh, last chapter of John. John chapter 21, 25. You want to see hyperbole in the Bible? And I could show you other ones too. But John 21, 25. Now there are, this is right at the end of the gospel of John. John writes this about Jesus. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. You know what that is? Hyperbole. Jesus only lived on the earth 33 years. You could write about every single second of his life and it wouldn't even fill up this entire auditorium. Okay? Winston Churchill has got hundreds of biographies, thousands and thousands of pages. It wouldn't even fill up this stage, not even close. And he lived a lot longer than Jesus did on the earth. This is not a lie or truth thing. It's clearly hyperbole. John is just saying, I didn't write all the miracles Jesus did. He did a whole bunch of other ones. And he uses a common, you know, phrase, hyperbole, that they used in those days. And he just says, if you wrote about all of it, it wouldn't even fit in the whole world. That's how much stuff Jesus did. Okay? But it's hyperbole. It's not a literal truth or false issue. Okay? That's super important. Now, sometimes skeptics, and this is a big place, and Christians too get confused, because skeptics will say, well, there are actually mistakes in the Bible with regards to science. And so one of the famous ones is skeptics will say, well, the Bible teaches that, uh, that the earth is at the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the earth, okay? 
Now, it, it's true. if the Bible does teach that, then the Bible has errors in it because we know that the earth doesn't, is not at the center of the universe and the sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. So if skeptics are right that the, that the Bible does teach that the earth is at the center of the universe, they're right. There are errors in this book. And God makes mistakes and he doesn't know everything and we can't trust everything in here. That's true. Okay? So then you ask the skeptic, well, where in the Bible does it teach that the earth is at the center of the universe? And they pull out three obscure verses from the Psalms. I want to show you one. Psalm 104, verse 5. He, that's God, set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And skeptics read that and they say, look it, the Bible teaches totally different than what we know about the solar system. The Bible teaches that the earth never moves and we all in modern times know that the earth revolves around the sun and it spins and it's moving. So how, the Bible makes mistakes. And you know what this is? This is reading something literally that wasn't meant to be taken literally. It's a poem. Okay? It's poetry. He's not writing a science textbook on the solar system in Psalm 104 verse 5. The psalmist is sitting there looking out at the mountains and he's thinking about the greatness of God and he sees these huge, massive mountains that never move. And he's thinking about the God who laid them on their foundations. And he goes, wow! He's the one who laid the earth on its foundations. He's not thinking about the solar system. He's thinking about the bigness of God. And he's thinking about the massiveness of the oceans and how small we human beings are on the face of the earth and how big the earth is. And he just goes, God is the one that put all this stuff in place. It's so big. It's so massive. It's so awesome. And that's not a scientific teaching, okay? And so the Bible uses all kinds of literary devices like this. If I could get that next one up there, Ken. All kinds. Figures of speech, hyperbole, poetry, parables. You don't read these literally. And if you do, you're going to get weird. It's got historical narratives and commands and doctrine. And those ones, you, we do have to read them literally. It's all true. It's all true. But when I say something with hyperbole, when I say I've been sitting at this red light forever, it's not literally true that it's forever and ever, obviously. But what I'm telling you is the truth. I feel like I've been here for a long time, okay? Everything in the Bible is true, but poetry is true as poems are true. And parables are true, not in the sense that they really happened, but in the sense that they convey true things that Jesus wants us to know. Okay? Now, I know that the moment I teach this, some Christians here just get all fearful. <gasps> we don't take everything literally. Oh, my. And they think that we're just going down this bad path, and they're scared because now, oh, Chris, if we don't take all of it literally, how do I know what stuff to take literally? And they get all scared. Like, they, like so many Christians today, they just want this to be so neat and easy. Chris, just, you know, Genesis to Revelation, every single thing, 100% literally, it's so easy. I can just open it in here and wham, that's literal and that's literal and that's literal and that would be easier. And then there's this fear reaction that if we don't take all of it literally, we're going we're gonna to lose all of it. How are we going to know? We're going to be confused. We're going to be, and, and so let me just say this again. Relax. You want to know something? You want to know what the biggest thing you need to figure out in the Bible? What is literal and what isn't literal? Common sense. Common sense. I'm not talking about, you know, the Holy Spirit having to interpret for you what you want to do with the passage. You need the Holy Spirit for that, not, not common sense. But when you want to figure out, is this literal or is this not literal? It's common sense. Like when you read in the Gospels and it says, Jesus told him a parable. It's a parable. 
Luke 18. Jesus told them this story to illustrate that they should always pray and never give up. Oh, and then he tells a story about the widow and the unjust judge. That's not an actual historical story. It's a story to illustrate for us a principle. The prodigal son is a parable. It's very, okay? So if it says it's a parable, it's a parable. Okay? And if, it's, and if the story is told as if it's true, as if it really happened, then it really did happen. The book of Daniel doesn't say, the Daniel in the lion's den, it doesn't say like some liberal Christians want us to believe, they just don't believe in miracles. So if there's a miracle in it, it must be an allegory. No, no, that's, oh, that's complicating things. When you read the book of Daniel, it's told as a true story that really happened. So then it did happen. Otherwise the Bible would be lying. So the Bible explains it, the context. God isn't trying to confuse you here. Poetry is obviously poetry. It's just like when you're, you know, someone, when you read poetry even nowadays, for those of you who do that, okay? Or you read a song. It's very different than reading a newspaper. And you don't freak out going, oh, this poem is so wrong. No, it's a poem. It's common sense. When your teenage son comes in and says, I'm starving. You don't freak out. Oh, hook him up to IV. It's common sense. You know. <laughs> I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Oh, I didn't make enough chicken today. <laughs> it's common sense, right? You're a human being. You were made to speak in figures of speech and you were made to, some of you were made to enjoy poetry and maybe all of us will get there someday. And you were made for these things. So you, this is how we human beings communicate. And when you're in the Bible, the context makes it clear usually. Now, we have to have some humility with this, okay? So uh, I'm not saying that, you know, everything in here is always easy to understand. There's no hard passage. Certainly, there's many passages in here that are hard to understand, okay? And my rule of thumb is I just take everything in here at face value. If it, if it, if it doesn't say it's a metaphor or a symbol or an allegory, I just take it as literally true. And guess what? I still, I sometimes get it wrong. Sometimes, me taking a passage literally true, I do that for a couple of years, and, a co and then also one day I find out, by me taking this passage literally true, I, I, it happens that I make a contradiction with this passage over here. But when that happens, I have to look at the passages a little closer and change my view. That's okay. It's okay. You don't have to worry about that. Okay? You just change it. You just take it at face value, and you work with it, it's usually pretty common. Now, and, and again, there will be passages in here that, you know, they'll just always be difficult to understand. That's also why we have a church family. You're not on your own. You're not out in a, in a cabin somewhere by yourself your whole life trying to figure out the Bible by yourself. You're here in the body. You come to church every weekend. You hear preaching. We explain to you more of the Bible. You learn. Oh, okay, that's how you do it. That, that's what that means. And you learn. You go to your cell. You discuss things. You, you ask questions. We have, our past, you know, we have a whole bunch of pastors here. You can email us. You can phone us. You can meet with us. That's, we have the church here, and we, and we come to an understanding together. Can I just say one thing? A real good tip for you now, okay? A real good tip. When you're reading your Bible, some people and they're doing their devotions, and they're doing their journaling, some people focus on all the stuff they don't understand. That's the wrong thing to do. Rather than focusing on all the stuff you don't understand, when you're doing your devotions, let me encourage you to do something. The stuff you don't understand, just put on a shelf. Like sometimes I'll read stuff in my devotions too, I don't understand. I go, God, I would really love to know what that passage means. In the meantime, there's two or three th other things in this passage that I do understand, and I better obey them. 
Focus on the stuff you know. Don't worry. For some of you, don't focus. You read the Bible and you're discouraged. I don't want to read my Bible anymore because I don't understand any of it. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, maybe 90% of it you don't understand. Don't worry about the 90%. Every day, open up God's word, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and then focus on the 10% you do get. Focus on the stuff you do get and God will give you more. You know what one of the parables that Jesus tells over and over again in the Gospels is? To him, uh, to, to, I'm not even going to try it because I'm going to quote it so wrong. But basically the gist is, if you do with the little bit that he gives you, he gives you more. You do with the little bit he gives you, if you're faithful in the little, he gives you more. If you're faithful with the little you do understand, he'll give you more understanding. Does that make sense? So we're here in a body. We work at this together. You don't have to have it all figured out. You, can, you don't have to have, there are passages in here that I still don't get now. And there will be passages at the end of my life that I don't get until Jesus comes back. So I'm not worried about all of those. I'm just going after the stuff I do know. And I'm pursuing God more and more. And then lastly, I want to say this. So we have the church body. Focus on what you know, not on what you don't know. And then lastly, I want to say one other thing. We have actually something even better. And you have something even better. And I have something even better. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. Jesus preaches a whole message just before he dies and he talks about the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again. I'll just take two verses out of his message, which lots of it is about the Holy Spirit, which is from John 14 to 16. But here's two verses from that. Jesus says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will teach you all things, and he will guide you into all truth. Those are promises written in this book, which is from God and has no errors in it. Which means they have to be true. If you're following Jesus today and you actually want to obey him, then you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And if the Holy Spirit is in your heart, he's a real person. You can actually ask him, guide me, Jesus, I want to have more understanding of your word. And he can lead you because Jesus promises that he will teach you all things and he will guide you into all truth. That is an absolutely unbelievable, amazing gift. But I wonder how many of us here today have, do not open this gift or have not opened this gift. You're a Christian. You read your Bible every now and then. But you have huge issues in your life. You've got complicated problems with a child and you don't know what to do with them anymore. And you throw up your hands and you talk to everybody else and you look for advice everywhere else, but you haven't opened up God's word and said, Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. I need to know what to do with this kid. Help me. And spend time in God's word praying and meditating. And you have a big business decision or you have a big financial decision or your marriage is on the rocks and you have all these things and you need truth, you need revelation. What should I do? Where do I go from here? Lord, give me help, give me hope, give me encouragement, give me a promise, give me a direction. Yes or no, left or right, what do I do? Jesus said the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and he will guide you into all truth. 
But I wonder how many of us fail to ask the Holy Spirit. We fail to get into the Word of God. We fail to spend time there quietly before the Lord saying, Jesus, what do I do with this business decision? What do I do with this child thing? What do I do with this marriage? What do I do with this? What do I say to this? And we fail to sit there and let the Holy Spirit teach us. So what I want you to do is I want you just to close your eyes now and I want the Holy Spirit to just bring to your mind Something that you need truth on. You need a revelation. You need an answer. You need truth. And you have failed to bring that thing to God. Or you just need encouragement. You haven't bring it there, but you just need encouragement that he is going to speak. I want you to just let that come to your mind right now. What is, that, what is that thing or those two things that you need the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth? You need the Holy Spirit to teach you all things. Lord Jesus, you promised to send your Holy Spirit in our hearts. You've given us your word. And when we read your word and we ask you questions and we ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us, you actually give us the answers. You show us the way to go. I pray this week, Lord, we as a church are committing. We are not asking for the easy way out. We are committing ourselves to, to pursuing you and seeking you so that you can lead us into all truth. And I pray that as we do that this week, that you would open up our hearts, that revelation would pour in, Jesus. Revelation would pour in, transforming our parenting, transforming our business, transforming that big decision that's ahead of us. Lord Jesus, that your revelation would pour into us as we seek you in your word, that you would teach us all things and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.